Hi everyone, this is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American frontier at 1001 Stories from the Old West. Here you'll find stories about law keepers and lawbreakers, Indian fighters, prospectors, newspaper men, and others written often by the men who lived during those times and others who wrote about it later. It was a wild time in what Congressman Davy Crockett called this britches bustin' country and an important time in American history. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. Welcome back to our latest installment of 1001 Stories from the Old West. Tonight we have a special treat. We'll be listening to two different readings from women of the West. We'll begin with The Life and Adventures of Calamity Jane, written by Calamity Jane herself. And we'll follow that up with a reading from the book Boots and Saddles, or Life in Dakota with General Custer by Mrs. Elizabeth B. Custer, the wife of General Custer, copyright 1885. So these are both first-hand experiences of women in the Old West. Hope you enjoy. And now, the life and adventures of Calamity Jane. My maiden name was Marthy Cannery. I was born in Princeton, Missouri, May 1st, 1852. Father and mother were natives of Ohio. I had two brothers and three sisters, I being the oldest of the children. As a child, I always had a fondness for adventure and outdoor exercise, and a special fondness for horses, which I began to ride at an early age, and continued to do so until I became an expert rider, being able to ride the most vicious and stubborn of horses. In fact, the greater portion of my life in the early times was spent in this manner. In 1865, we emigrated from our homes in Missouri by the overland route to Virginia City, Montana, taking five months to make the journey. While on the way, the greater portion of my time was spent in hunting along with the men and hunters of the party. In fact, I was, at all times, with the men when there was excitement and adventures to be had. By the time we reached Virginia City, I was considered a remarkable good shot and a fearless rider for a girl of my age. I remember many occurrences on the journey from Missouri to Montana. Many times in crossing the mountains, the conditions of the trail was so bad that we frequently had to lower the wagons over the ledges by hand with ropes, for they were so rough and rugged that horses were of no use. We also had many exciting times fording streams, for many of the streams in our way were noted for quicksands and boggy places, where, unless you were very careful, We would have lost horses and all. Then we had many dangers to encounter in the way of streams swelling on account of heavy rains. On occasions of that kind, the men would usually select the best places to cross the stream. Myself, on more than one occasion, have mounted my pony and swam across the stream several times merely to amuse myself and have had many narrow escapes from having both myself and my pony washed away to certain death. But as the pioneers of those days had plenty of courage, we overcame all obstacles and reached Virginia City in safety. My mother died at Blackfoot, Montana, 1866, where we buried her. I left Montana in spring of 1866 for Utah, arriving at Salt Lake City during the summer. Remained in Utah until 1867 when my father died, then went to Fort Bridger in Wyoming Territory where we arrived May 1st, 1868. Then we went on to Piedmont, Wyoming, with the Union Pacific Railroad. 
I joined General Custer as a scout at Fort Russell, Wyoming in 1870 and started for Arizona for the Indian campaign. Up to this time, I had always worn the costume of my sex. When I joined Custer, I donned the uniform of a soldier. It was a bit awkward at first, but I soon got to be perfectly at home in men's clothes. Was in Arizona up to the winter of 1871, and during that time I had a great many adventures with the Indians. For, as a scout, I had a great many dangerous missions to perform, and while I was in many close places, always succeeded in getting away safely. For by this time, I was considered the most reckless and daring rider, and one of the best shots in the western country. After that campaign, I returned to Fort Sanders, Wyoming, and remained there until spring of 1872, when we were ordered out to the Muscle Shell Indian outbreak. In that war, Generals Custer, Miles, Terry, and Crook were all engaged. This campaign lasted until the fall of 1873. It was during this campaign that I was christened Calamity Jane. It was on Goose Creek, Wyoming, where the town of Sheridan is now located. Captain Egan was in the command of the post. We were ordered out to quell an Indian uprising. We were out for several days. We had numerous skirmishes, during which six of our soldiers were killed, and several severely wounded. When, on returning to the post, we were ambushed about a mile and a half from our destination. When fired upon, Captain Egan was shot. I was riding in advance, and on hearing the firing, turned in my saddle and saw the captain reeling in his saddle as though about to fall. I turned my horse and galloped back with all haste to his side and got there in time to catch him as he was falling. I lifted him onto my horse in front of me and succeeded in getting him safely to the fort. Captain Egan, on recovering, laughingly said, I name you Calamity Jane, the heroine of the plains. I have borne that name up to the present time. We were afterwards ordered to Fort Custer, where Custer City now stands, where we arrived in the spring of 1874. We remained around Fort Custer all summer and were ordered to Fort Russell in the fall of 1874. We remained there until the spring of 1875. We were then ordered to the Black Hills to protect miners, as that country was controlled by the Sioux Indians, and the government had to send the soldiers to protect the lives of the miners and settlers in that section. There we remained until the fall of 1875 and wintered at Fort Laramie. In spring of 1876, we were ordered north with General Crook to join Generals Miles, Terry, and Custer at Bighorn River. During this march, I swam the Platte River at Fort Fetterman as I was the bearer of important dispatches. I had a 90-mile ride to make. Being wet and cold, I contracted a severe illness and was sent back in General Crook's ambulance to Fort Fetterman, where I laid in the hospital for 14 days. When able to ride, I started for Fort Laramie, where I met William Hickok, better known as Wild Bill, and we started for Deadwood, where we arrived about June. During the month of June, I acted as a Pony Express rider carrying the U.S. mail between Deadwood and Custer, a distance of 50 miles, over one of the roughest trails in the Black Hills country. As many of the riders before me had been held up and robbed of their packages, mail, and money they carried, for that was the only means of getting mail and money between these points, it was considered the most dangerous route in the hills. But as my reputation as a rider and quick shot was well known, I was molested very little, for the toll-gatherers looked on me as being a good fellow, and they knew that I never missed my mark. 
I made the round trip every two days, which was considered pretty good riding in that country. Remained around Deadwood all that summer, visiting all the camps within an area of 100 miles. My friend, Wild Bill, remained in Deadwood during the summer, with the exception of occasional visits to the camps. On the 2nd of August, while sitting at a gambling table in the Bell Union Saloon in Deadwood, he was shot in the back of the head by the notorious Jack McCall, a desperado. I was in Deadwood at the time, and on hearing of the killing, made my way at once to the scene of the shooting, and found that my friend had been killed by McCall. I at once started to look for the assassin, and found him at Shirty's Butcher Shop, and I grabbed a meat cleaver and made him throw up his hands. Through the excitement on hearing of Bill's death, I had left my guns on the post of my bed. He was then taken to a log cabin and locked up, well secured as everyone thought. But he got away and was afterwards caught at Fagan's Ranch on Horse Creek on the old Cheyenne Road. And he was taken to Yankton, Dakota, where he was tried, sentenced, and hung. I remained around Deadwood locating claims going from camp to camp until the spring of 1877, where one morning I saddled my horse and rode toward Crook City. I had gone about 12 miles from Deadwood at the mouth of Whitewood Creek, when I met the overland mail running from Cheyenne to Deadwood. The horses on a run about 200 yards from the station. Upon looking closely, I saw they were pursued by Indians. The horses ran to the barn, as was their custom. As the horses stopped, I rode alongside the coach and found the driver, John Slaughter, lying face down in the boot of the stage. He had been shot by the Indians. When the stage got to the station, the Indians hid in the bushes. I immediately removed all baggage from the coach, except the mail. I then took the driver's seat and with all haste drove to Deadwood, carrying the six passengers and the dead driver. I left Deadwood in the fall of 1877 and went to Bear Butte Creek with the 7th Cavalry. During the fall and winter, we built Fort Meade and the town of Sturgis. In 1878, I left the command and went to Rapid City and put in the year prospecting. In 1879, I went to Fort Pier and drove trains from Rapid City to Fort Pier for Frank White. Then drove teams from Frank Pier to Sturgis for Fred Evans. This teaming was done with oxen as they were better fitted for the work than horses, owing to the rough nature of the country. In 1881, I went to Wyoming and returned in 1882 to Miles City and took up a ranch on the Yellowstone, raising stock and cattle. Also kept a wayside inn where the weary traveler could be accommodated with food, drink, or trouble if he looked for it. Left the ranch in 1883 and went to California, going through the states and territories. Reached Ogden, the latter part of 1883, in San Francisco in 1884. I left San Francisco in the summer of 1884 for Texas, stopping at Fort Yuma, Arizona, the hottest spot in the United States, stopping at all points of interest until I reached El Paso in the fall. While in El Paso, I met Mr. Clinton Burke, a native of Texas, who I married in August of 1885, as I thought I had traveled through my life enough alone and thought it was about time to take a partner for the rest of my days. We remained in Texas, leading a quiet home life until 1889. On October 28, 1887, I became the mother of a baby girl, the very image of her father. 
at least that's what he said, but who had the temper of her mother. When we left Texas, we went to Boulder, Colorado, where we kept a hotel until 1893, after which we traveled through Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, and then back to Montana. We then went to Dakota, arriving in Deadwood in October of 1895, after an absence of 17 years. My arrival in Deadwood after an absence of so many years created quite an excitement among my many friends of the past, to such an extent that a vast number of the citizens who had come to Deadwood during my absence, who had heard so much of Calamity Jane and her many adventures in the former years, were anxious to see me. Among the many whom I met were several gentlemen from eastern cities who advised me to allow myself to be placed before the public in such a manner as to give the people of the eastern cities an opportunity of seeing the woman scout who was made so famous through her career in the west in the Black Hill countries. An agent of Cole Middleton, the celebrated museum men, came to Deadwood through the solicitation of the gentleman who I had met and arrangements were made to place me before the public in this manner. My first engagement began at the Palace Museum in Minneapolis, January 20, 1896, under Cole and Middleton's management. I do hope that this little history of my life may interest all readers. I remain, as in the older days, yours, Mrs. M. Burke, better known as Calamity Jane. And that concludes The Life and Adventures of Calamity Jane, as written by Calamity Jane. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll take a few moments now to hear from our sponsors. All right, and next we'll hear an excerpt from the book Boots and Saddles, or Life in Dakota with General Custer, written by his wife, Elizabeth B. Custer, Copyright 1885. Long after the flowers were blooming in the States, the tardy spring began to appear in the far north. The snow slowly melted and the ice commenced to thaw on the river. For a moment it would be a pleasure to imagine the privilege of again walking out on the sod without peril of freezing. The next instant the dread of the coming campaign, which summer is almost certain to bring to a cavalry command, filled every thought and made me wish that our future life could be spent where the thermometer not only went down to 20 degrees below zero, but remained there. When I spied the first tiny blade of grass, I used to find myself acting like a child and grinding the innocent green with my heel back from where it sprang. The first bunch of flowers that the soldiers brought me, long before the ground had begun to take on even a faint emerald tint, were a variety of anemone, a bit of blue set deep down in a cup of outer petals of gray. These were so thick and fuzzy, they looked like a surrounding of gray blanket. And well, the flowers needed such protection on the bleak hills where they grew. They were a great novelty, and I wanted to go and seek them out myself. But my husband gave me the strictest injunction in reply not to step outside the garrison limits. We had received warning only a short time before that the Indians had crawled out of their winter teepees and we knew ourselves to be so surrounded that it became necessary to station pickets on the high ground at the rear of the post. On the first mild day, my husband and I rode over the opposite bank of the river, which was considered the safe side. Thinking ourselves secure from danger there, we kept on further than we realized. A magnificent black-tailed deer 
startled by our voices and laughter, and yet too well hidden by the underbrush to see us, resorted to a device habitual to the deer when they wished to see over an extent of country. He made a leap straight into the air. His superb head turned to us searchingly. He seemed hardly to touch the earth as he bounded away. It was too great a temptation to resist. We did not follow far, though, for we had neither dogs nor gun. Scarcely any time elapsed before an officer and a detachment of men riding over the ground where we had startled the deer, but obliged to pursue their way further up the valley as they were on duty, came to a horrible sight. The body of a white man was staked on the ground and disemboweled. There yet remained the embers of the smoldering fire that consumed him. If the Indians are hurried for time and cannot stay to witness the prolonged torture of their victim, it is their custom to pinion the captive and place hot coals on his vitals. The horror and fright this gave us women lasted for a time and rendered unnecessary the continued warnings of our husbands about walking outside the line of the pickets. Even with all the admonitions, we began to grow desperate and chafed under our imprisonment that confined us to a little square of earth month in and month out. One day, temptation came suddenly upon us as three of us were loitering on the outskirts of the post. The soldier who drove our traveling wagon, the imperturbable Berkman, came near. We cajoled him into letting us get in and take ever so short a turn down the valley. Delighted to have our freedom again, we wheedled the good-natured man to go a little and a little further. At last, even he, amiable as he was, refused to be coaxed any longer, and he turned around. We realized then how far away we were, but we were not so far that we could not plainly discover a group of officers on the veranda at our quarters. They were gesticulating wildly and beckoning to us with all their might. As we drove nearer, we could almost see by a certain movement of the lower jaw that the word being framed was one that seems to be used in all climates for extreme cases of aggravation. They were all provoked and caught us out of the carriage and set us down after a little salute for all the world like mothers I have seen who receive their children from narrow escapes with alternate shakings and hugs. It seemed hard to tell whether anger or delight predominated. In vain we made excuses when order was restored and we could all speak articulately. We were then solemnly sworn, each one separately, never to do such a foolhardy thing again. The government had made a special appropriation for rations to be distributed through the officers to the suffering farmers throughout Minnesota and Dakota whose crops had been destroyed by grasshoppers. As we were on the side of the river with the warlike Indians, we knew of but one ranch near us. It was owned by an old man who had been several times to the general for assistance. He was a man of extraordinary courage, for he had located his claim too far away for anyone to be able to obtain assistance if he needed it. He never left his home except to bring in to market the skins that he had trapped or his crops when the season was profitable. He was so quaint and peculiar and so very grateful for the help given him that my husband wanted me to hear him express his thanks. The next time he came, the door into our room was left open in order that I might listen to what otherwise he would have been too shy to utter. He blessed the general in the most touching and solemn manner. The tears were in his eyes, and answering ones rose in my husband's, for no old person failed to appeal to his sympathies and recall his own aged parents. 
Referring to some domestic troubles that he had previously confided to the general, he spoke of their having driven him beyond the pale of civilization when he was old and feeble, and compelled him to take his dinner of herbs in a deserted spot. At this point in his narrative, the door was significantly shut, and I was thus made aware that the gratitude part was all I was to be permitted to hear. My husband considered his confidence sacred. We knew that the old man lived a hermit's life, entirely alone the year through. In the blizzards, he could not leave his doorstep without being in danger of freezing to death. Sometime after this, a scout brought word that during the spring he had passed the ranch, and nothing was to be seen of the old man. The general suspected something wrong and took a company himself to go to the place. He found that the Indians had been there, had dismantled and robbed the house, had driven off the cattle and the horses, and strewn the road with plunder. On the stable floor lay the body of the harmless old man, his silvery hair lying in a pool of blood where he had been beaten to death. They were obliged to return and leave his death unavenged, for by the time the first news reached us, the murderers were far, far away. When the air became milder, it was a delight after our long housing to be able to dawdle on the piazza. The valley below us was beginning to show a tinge of green. Several hundred mules belonging to the supply wagon train dotted the turf and nibbled as best they could the sprouting grass. Half a dozen citizens lounged on the sod, sleepily guarding their herd, for these mules were hired by the government from a contractor. One morning we were walking back and forth, looking, as we never tired of doing, down the long, level plain where we were startled by shouts. We ran to the edge of the piazza and saw the prisoners, who had been working outside the post, and the guard who had them in charge, coming in at a double quick. A hatless and breathless herder dashed up to the officer on an unsaddled mule. With blanched face and protruding eyeballs, he called out that the Indians were running off the herd. The general came hastily out, just in time to see a cloud of dust rising through a gap in the bluffs, marking the direction taken by the stampeding mules. Instantly, he shouted with his clear voice to the bugler to sound the call, Boots and Saddles, and keep it up until he told him to stop. The first notes of the trumpet had hardly sounded before the porches of the company quarters and the parade were alive with men. Everyone, without stopping to question, rushed from the barracks and officers' quarters to the stables. The men threw their saddles on their horses and galloped out to the parade ground. Soldiers who were solely on garrison duty, and to whom no horse was assigned, stole whatever ones they could find, even those of the messengers tied to the hitching posts. Others vaulted onto mules barebacked. Some were in jackets, others in their flannel shirt sleeves. Many were hatless, and occasionally a head was tied up with a handkerchief. It was anything but a military-looking crowd, but every one was ready for action, and such spirited-looking creatures it is rarely one's lot to see. Finding the reason for the hasty summons, when they all gathered together, they could hardly brook even a few moments' delay. The general did not tarry to give any but brief directions. He detailed an officer to remain in charge of the garrison and left him some hurried instructions. He stopped to caution me again not to go outside the post, and with a hasty goodbye flung himself on the saddle and was off. The command spurred their horses toward the opening in the bluff, not a quarter of a mile away through which the last mules had passed. In twenty minutes from the first alarm, the garrison was emptied and we women stood watching the cloud of dust that the hooves of the regimental horses had stirred as they hurled themselves through the cleft in the hills. 
We had hardly collected our senses before we found that we were almost deserted. As a rule, there are enough soldiers on garrison duty who do not go on scouts to protect the post. But in the mad haste of the morning, and impelled by the indignant fury at having the herd swept away from under their very noses, all the home guard had left without permission. Fortunately for them, and his own peace of mind regarding our safety, the general did not know of this until he returned. Besides, the officers never dreamed the pursuit would last more than a mile or so, as they had been so quick in preparing to follow. After our gasping and wild heart-beating had subsided a little, we realized that, in addition to our anxiety for those who had just left us, we were in peril ourselves. The women were, with one instinct, gathered together. Though Indians rarely attack a post directly, the pickets that were stationed on the low hills at the rear of the garrison had been fired upon previously. We also feared that the buildings would be set on fire by the wily creeping savages. It was even thought that the running off of the herd was but a ruse to get the garrison out in order to attack the post. Of course we knew that only a portion of the Indians had produced the stampede, and we feared that the remainder were waiting to continue the depredations and were aware of our depleted numbers. Huddled together in an inner room, we first tried to devise schemes for secreting ourselves. The hastily built quarters had no cellars. How we regretted that a cave had not been prepared in the hill back of us for the hiding of women in emergencies. Our means of escape by the river were uncertain, as the ferry boat was in a shocking condition. Besides, the citizens in charge would very naturally detain the boat upon some pretext on the safe side of the river. Finally, nervous and trembling over these conferences, we returned to the piazza and tried to think that it was time for the return of the regiment. Our house being the last in the line and commanding an extended view of the valley, we kept our lookout there. Each of us took turns in mounting the porch railing and, held there in place by the others, fixed the field glass on the little spot of earth through which the command had vanished. With a plaintive little laugh, one of our number called out the inquiry that had symbolized all beleaguered women from time immemorial. Sister Anne, do you see anyone coming? All of us scanned the horizon unflaggingly. We knew the Indian mode of taking observation. They piled a few stones on the brow of the hill after dark, before dawn, they'd creep up stealthily on the farther side and, hiding behind the slight protection, watch all day long with unwearying patience. These little picket posts of theirs were scattered all along the bluffs. We scarcely allowed ourselves to take our eyes off them. Once in a while, one of our group, on watch, called out that something was moving behind those rocks. Chairs were brought out and placed beside her in order that a second pair of eyes might confirm the statement. This threw our little shivering group into new panics. There was a window in the servants' room at the rear of the house, to and from which we ascended and descended all day long. I do not think the actual fear of death was thought of so much as the all-absorbing terror of capture. Our regiment had rescued some white women from captivity in Kansas, and we never forgot their stories. One of our number became so convinced that their fate awaited us that she called a resolute woman to the side to implore her to promise that when the Indians came into the post, she would put a bullet through her heart before she carried out her determination to shoot herself. We sincerely discussed whether, in extreme danger, we could be counted upon to load and fire a carbine. It would be expected that army women would know a great deal about firearms. I knew but few who did. 
I never even went into the corner of my husband's library where he kept his stand of unloaded arms, if I could help it. I am compelled to confess that the holster of a pistol gave me a shiver. One of our ladies, however, had a little of the Molly Pitcher spirit. She had shot at a mark, and she promised to teach us to put in the cartridges and discharge the piece. We were filled with envy because she produced a tiny Remington pistol that heretofore she had carried in her pocket when traveling in the States. It was not much larger than a lead pencil, and we could not help doubting its power to damage. She did not insist that it would kill, but even at such a time, we had to laugh at the vehement manner in which she declared that she could disable the leg of an enemy. She seemed to think that sufficient pluck would be left to finish him afterwards. The officer, who had remained in command, was obliged to see that the few troopers left were armed, and afterward he visited the pickets. Then he came to us and tried to quiet our fears, and from that time his life became a burden. We questioned twenty times his idea as to where he thought the command had gone, and when it would come back, and such other aimless queries as only the ingenuity of a frightened woman can devise. He was driven almost desperate. In assuring us that he hoped there was no immediate danger, he asked us to remember that the infantry post was near enough to give assistance if we needed it. Alas, that post seemed miles away, and we believed the gullies that intervened between the two garrisons would be filled with Indians. After a prolonged season of this experience, the officer tried to escape and go to his quarters. We were really so anxious and alarmed that he had not the heart to resist our appeals to him to remain near. And so that long day dragged away. About five o'clock in the afternoon, a faint haze arose on the horizon. We could hardly restrain our uneasy feet. We wanted to run up and over the bluff to discover what it meant. We regretted that we had given our word of honor that we would not leave the limits of the post. Soon after, the mules appeared, traveling wearily back through the same opening in the bluffs through which so many hours before they had rushed headlong. We were bitterly disappointed to find only a few soldiers driving them, and they gave but little news. When the regiment overtook the stock, these men had been detailed to return with the recaptured animals to the garrison. The command had pushed on in pursuit of the Indians. The night set in, and we were in suspense. We made a poor attempt to eat dinner. We knew that none of the regiment had taken rations with them, and several of the officers had not even breakfasted. There was nothing for us to do but remain together for the night. From this miserable frame of mind we were thrown into new excitement, but fortunately not of fear. We heard the sound of the band ringing out on the still evening air. Every woman was instantly on the piazza. From an entirely different direction from that in which they had left, the regiment appeared, marching to the familiar notes of Gary Owen. Such a welcome as met them. The relief from the anxiety of the unending day was inexpressible. When the regiment was nearing the post, the general had sent an orderly to bring in the band out to meet them. He cautioned him to secrecy because he wished us to have a joyous release from the suspense he knew we had endured. The regiment had ridden 20 miles out, as hard as the speed of the horses would allow. The general and the other officers mounted like himself on a Kentucky thoroughbred found themselves far in advance and almost up to some of the Indians. They, seeing themselves so closely pressed, resorted to the cunning of their race to escape. They threw themselves from their ponies and plunged into the underbrush of a deep ravine where no horse could follow. The ponies were captured, but it was useless to try any further pursuit. 
All the horses were fagged, and the officers and men suffering from the want of food and water. When the herders were questioned the next day, it was found that the Indians had started the stampede by riding suddenly up from the river where they had been concealed. Uttering the wildest yells, they each swung a buffalo robe about the ears of the easily excited mules. An astonishing collection of maimed and halt appeared the next morning. Neither men nor officers had been in the saddle during the winter. This sudden ride of so many miles without preparation had so bruised and stiffened their joints and flesh that they could scarcely move naturally. When they sat down, it was with the groans of old men, and when they rose, they declared they would stand perpetually until they were again limber and their injuries healed. As the officer who had been left behind, he insisted that their fate was infinitely preferable to his. We heard that he said to the others, in confidence, that should he ever be detailed to command a garrison where agitated women were left, he would protest and beg for active duty, no matter if it meant his life were in jeopardy. And that concludes our reading of Boots and Saddles, Mrs. Elizabeth Custer's personal memories of being on the frontier with her husband, General George Custer. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hate to pander for reviews, but... They are the one thing that helps the algorithm to help other people to find us. So we do have a new review from, out of respect for both you and your screen name, I'm just going to spell it, G-I-T-A-R-D. And it's 1001 Stories of the Old West. Awesome. Look forward to each Sunday episode. Great podcast. Thank you. Well, you are certainly welcome, and I certainly enjoy reading these for you. And we'll just stay together and keep hammering these things out. Thank you much. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.